Hi, interns, and welcome back to part two of our season one finale story. If you haven't yet listened to part one, make sure that you pause this right now and head back and listen to that story first so you'll know what we're talking about. To refresh your memory, last week we learned about Jerry Kolpeck, a veteran who was incorrectly told that a biopsy from his prostate was not malignant, only to find out years later that it had been cancer all along and had spread past the point of being curable. He passed away from the cancer, and his family carried the torch by pursuing a malpractice lawsuit against the doctor who botched identifying the cancer. At the time, he was the chief pathologist at a Veteran Affairs Hospital in Fayetteville, Arkansas. This is the story of the fall of Dr. Robert Morris Levy and the trail of tragedy that followed. Welcome to the Miss Medical Podcast, Diagnosis Flatline. I'm your host, Destry Godwin. Miss Medical explores stories of misdiagnosis, malpractice, mysteries, and misogyny. You're my interns, and this is where true crime and medicine collide. This is Miss Medical. Robert Levy was born in 1967. I don't know an abundance about his early life or his path into medicine, but I do know a bit from statements that were included in legal documents. Robert received his medical license in 1997 from the Mississippi State Board of Medical Licensure. He would have been 30 at that time, so I think it's reasonable to assume he followed a fairly linear path into medicine. He certainly couldn't have taken much time off to explore other career paths if he was already licensed by that age. In the U.S., pathologists are doctors who have completed a four-year undergraduate program four years of medical school training, and then three to four years of postgraduate training in a pathology residency. From there, they can branch out into further specialties or fellowships, but at a minimum, it's generally 11 to 12 years of schooling. So if you're doing the math like I am, Robert would have headed into his undergrad program pretty much straight after graduating high school. In 2005, with only eight years of experience under his belt, the Veteran Healthcare System of the Ozarks, sometimes called the Veteran Affairs or VA Hospital of Fayetteville, invited Robert to join their team as the Chief of Pathology and Laboratory Medical Services. That 
title is certainly a mouthful. Interestingly, even though Robert was licensed in Mississippi, which would generally restrict his medical practice to that state only, the VA does not require physicians to be licensed in the specific state of the hospital. Basically, this meant Robert could accept a position in Arkansas without needing an Arkansas-issued medical license. If you aren't too sure what a pathologist is or what they do, I'll give you a quick breakdown because it's definitely relevant to our case here. The prefix path is derived from the Greek word pathos and has a somewhat loose translation of suffering or disease. The suffix of the word means a doctor or a person who studies. So a pathologist would be a doctor who studies suffering or disease. It's not a great translation as far as medical terms go, but it kind of really is what a pathologist does. They examine bodies as whole systems and bodily fluids and tissues to identify disease or help reach a diagnosis. They are an important piece of the medical system for investigating medical issues with broad or chronic symptoms and helping a primary care doctor to reach a diagnosis. They also inspect, examine, and make a diagnosis of disease in biopsied tissue or fluid samples. Generally, pathologists will specialize in one of four different career paths. Anatomic pathology, dermatopathology, forensic pathology, and laboratory medicine. There are, of course, many varying subsets of specialties beyond these ones as well, but they are the more common ones where you may have heard the term pathologist used before. In the case of Robert and his shiny new title with Veteran Affairs, his focus was on laboratory pathology, assessing tissue and fluid samples from biopsies to identify cases of disease, most commonly would be signs of cancer. For the most part, it seems Robert was successful in his new position for several years. There was no concerning history that came up, at least that I could find, between 2005 and 2013. Now, it is hard to know if that's because there just weren't any issues happening during that time, or if it's that they just weren't being noticed. Part of the reason that that could even be a possibility is because the person who had developed and maintained the pathology lab's quality management program was none other than Dr. Levy himself, even though it was only Dr. Levy and one other pathologist working there. He was also the chair of oversight committees. So if any concerns had been brought forward, it's possible that Robert was able to dismiss them or have those concerns mm, mysteriously disappear 
In his personal life at this time, Dr. Levy was married on November 14th, 2013 in Fayetteville. But all was not rosy for the newlyweds. Public records show that Robert filed for divorce less than a month later, on December 10th of 2013. However, also strangely, it does appear that he had a change of heart because he ultimately withdrew his petition for divorce, which was dismissed without prejudice in April of 2014. And that rolls right into the beginning of our breadcrumb trail related to his career. The first record I found that mentions the beginning of the end for Dr. Levy was from 2014, when the chief of staff for the healthcare system reportedly received a complaint that Dr. Levy smelled of alcohol but it doesn't seem that there was any follow-up to this at that time. His suspected issues with alcohol use resurfaced in September of 2015, when it was reported that a hospital staff member filed a report stating Dr. Levy showed up to work smelling of alcohol with red eyes and hand tremors. At that point, he was interviewed by a fact-finding panel who asked if he was under the influence of alcohol while on duty at the hospital. Dr. Levy denied the allegations. One source reported that in October of 2015, when he was called into the review for the complaint made the month prior, He showed up smelling of mouthwash, had red, glassy eyes, and exhibited hand tremors. I have seen multiple reports that point to the general culture within the facility contributing to this downfall being able to happen. There seemed to be a lack of accountability just in general, And many staff did not go so far as to report their concerns about Dr. Levy's behaviors, either because they believed that somebody else had already submitted a report, or because they feared that that claim or that report might be tracked back to them and then result in reprisal. Well, this culture concern is certainly an issue, I think it's also not entirely unfounded for staff to fear retribution when Dr. Levy himself was the one overseeing the quality management program. It's still no excuse, though, for the choices that Dr. Levy made. That responsibility lives with him and him alone. The unraveling starts to happen quicker once 2016 rolls around. Sometime in the year, Dr. Levy was reported yet again for erratic behavior and suspected intoxication. For some 
bizarre reason, he agreed to a blood alcohol test that revealed his BAC was 0.396. That is an extreme amount of alcohol when you consider the legal limit in many places in North America is 0.08. He was more than four times over the legal limit. Because of this finding, Dr. Levy was put immediately on a suspension of his ability to practice medicine as well as his clinical privileges. With his back against the wall at this point, he was facing not only losing his job, but potentially his medical license entirely. So he voluntarily entered a three-month inpatient treatment program for his alcohol abuse addiction from July of 2016 to October of 2016. Now, this may or may not be a surprise to you, but various substance abuse issues aren't entirely unheard of in the medical field. And generally, if the person involved addresses the issue and gets appropriate help, it's not necessarily the end of their career. However, malpractice and liability are serious matters, so there are usually safeguards put in place to monitor the ongoing performance of such professionals to make sure they don't slip back into their old ways. And this was no different for Dr. Levy. He was presented with a contract from the Mississippi State Board of Medical Licensure and the Mississippi Physician Health Program that detailed his exact responsibilities for returning to work. Naturally, a big piece of that agreement involved Dr. Levy agreeing to abstain completely from both alcohol and other mood-altering substances. To ensure he was compliant to this, he would also have to undergo random urine and or blood tests checking for both alcohol and other drugs. Of course, the freshly rehabilitated Dr. Levy agreed to the terms and returned to work in October of 2016. And those random drug and alcohol tests were not a bluff. Over the next two years, he was randomly tested a whopping 42 times. That's pretty close to bi-weekly testing for a full two years. And if you think you already know where this is going, well, you'd probably be wrong. Because our model of Mr. Rehabilitated passed every single one. But you already know that can't be the full picture. And the true depth of Dr. Levy's web of deceit became clear, finally, 
on March 1st, 2018. That day, a sheriff's deputy from Washington County spotted Dr. Levy's vehicle driving in a suspicious way. He suspected the driver may be having medical issues or be impaired in some way and pulled the vehicle over. The car came to a stop on Dixon Street, a road sometimes referred to as the heartbeat of Fayetteville, in front of the local post office. Behind the wheel was none other than Mr. Levy himself. I wasn't able to dig up the record of this encounter to know how everything went down exactly, but considering the deputy called for further police backup, it's pretty clear he had serious concerns about Dr. Levy's condition and his ability to drive. Dr. Levy was subjected to a field sobriety test. You know, those tests where you have to walk in a straight line and stand on one foot while touching your nose? Well, after Dr. Levy failed that test, the Fayetteville Police Department had arrived to provide additional support and conducted a breathalyzer. Now, this all seems odd, right? I mean, Robert Levy had been an alcoholic, but he'd been to rehab and had passed every single alcohol test since, right? Was this just a one-off situation where he'd fallen off the wagon and happened to get caught? Well, not exactly. But the breathalyzer also did not come up positive for alcohol. Rather, it reported an interfering substance. In my curiosity, I looked this up because I didn't even realize there could be such a reading. I have learned a lot about the dynamics of how a breathalyzer works, but don't ask me to explain it to you. The most important takeaway here is that there are actually several substances, for example, acetone, that can cause this reading. But it's certainly not a common finding, and it's not considered conclusive because it basically tells you that something is going on, but not what is going on. So with that confusion in mind, and especially considering Dr. Levy's history when it came to alcohol use, an investigation was launched by the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs Inspector General's Office. And boy, did they find what they were looking for. As it turned out, Mr. Levy had never actually stopped his quest to be intoxicated. He just got really, really clever about it. Only a month after he had been discharged from the rehab program and reinstated at his job, he had began researching drugs that could provide him with the same effect of being intoxicated, but without being detected on an alcohol or drug screening test. What he found was a chemical substance we'll call 2M2B, 
though the actual chemical itself is 2-methyl-2-butanol. It's considered a tertiary alcohol, which historically was used as an anesthetic, although it has more recently emerged into the recreational drug scene. Wikipedia claims it affects receptors in the same way as traditional ethanol, and so the effects on the mind and body are similar, though 2M2B is considered more potent than ethanol, and the effects on a person's balance and physical coordination are typically more noticeable with 2M2B. And it's quite a bit more toxic. Where generally 100 grams of ethanol would render somebody unconscious, it takes only 2 to 4 grams of 2M2B to do the same. Interestingly, it's not an uncommon compound. It's a byproduct of fermenting grains. And since grain is used in many true alcohol products, 2M2B can be found in trace amounts in many alcoholic beverages. Beyond that, Wikipedia claims it's even been detected in fried bacon. Don't ask me how that relates to fermented grains, unless pigs are fermenting food in their stomach that's absorbed into their tissues. And it's also been found in rooibos tea, and perhaps the weirdest one, in rabbit milk. 2M2B also causes longer periods of intoxication, up to 24 hours after consumption, and it doesn't go through the same metabolic process as alcohol, so it doesn't result in a hangover. But let's be clear, it's not designed for human consumption and certainly not for use at a workplace. This, though, was all information that Dr. Levy knew. He knew it would give him the same effects as being drunk and that it wouldn't be detectable on routine testing. Despite knowing all of this, he placed 12 separate orders between June of 2017 and when he was eventually caught in March of 2018. It was these orders that were turned up during the investigation. Otherwise, it's possible that he could have gotten away with this behavior even longer. Due to the DUI incident, Mr. Levy was no longer able to practice medicine, and an independent review of all of his cases began. And this was no small undertaking. When you consider his position and length of employment, that all amounts to a lot of cases he oversaw that all needed to be independently reviewed. Reportedly, that review took the manpower of 53 pathologists who reviewed over 300,000 samples from 33,000 
902 cases, with a total cost of $2.1 million. And if you're curious, I found it reported that Dr. Levy's annual salary around this time would have been $225,000 U.S. dollars. But I digress. It was a good thing they did the review. They found 592 cases where there was a significant missed diagnosis that would be serious enough to have risked the patient's health, and 30 of those cases were confirmed to have had serious medical consequences. And one of those cases was none other than Mr. Jerry Kolpeck, who got that fateful call in June of 2018 telling him his tissue sample from six years prior had been re-examined and, in fact, had been cancerous all along. Now, I think it's also important to point out that all pathologists make errors at some point in their career. Unfortunately, it's not an exact science, and sometimes samples are extremely difficult to draw a conclusion from. Even on this podcast, this isn't the first case we've seen of an incorrect diagnosis stemming from a pathology sample. But when all was said and done with the investigation, the Washington Post reported that Dr. Levy's rate of clinical errors was at almost 10%, which is more than 10 times what would be considered standard within the industry. The reported normal average is only 0.7%. Beyond those staggering statistics, though, was the fact that Dr. Levy seemed to know he was not doing an adequate job. It's not uncommon for a pathologist to seek the opinion of a colleague when it comes to a difficult sample and to have them sign off on the report that they have also examined it and they concur with whatever conclusion, either that there was a diagnosis present or that none was found. And this was a practice that happened several times for Dr. Levy's reports. He stated that his fellow pathologist concurred with his findings, despite that never happening. And in some cases, even despite his colleague expressly disagreeing with Dr. Levy. But as we know, Dr. Levy was the boss of the department, so to speak, so any colleague he implicated was technically a subordinate of his. And let's not forget, Dr. Levy had also strategically poised himself as a key member of the quality control within the department, giving him nearly untouchable power to bend the rules to suit hiding his own shortcomings. To really understand how grave this was, these weren't just little white lies he was covering up. In one instance, in February of 2014, Dr. Levy examined tissue samples from a tumor in a lymph node of a patient and made a diagnosis of diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. He was contacted by another doctor 
who urged him to re-examine the sample over fears that the diagnosis was incorrect. But Dr. Levy doubled down on his claim and falsely entered data into the patient's medical record, stating that another pathologist had reviewed his findings and agreed with the diagnosis. Only five months later, the Air Force veteran had passed away from small cell carcinoma, for which he had received no targeted treatments for, thanks to Dr. Levy's incorrect diagnosis of lymphoma. Another victim of Levy's negligent pathology work was Kelly Copeland, a retired Air Force Master Sergeant. Kelly had been suffering with symptoms related to an ear infection, but a biopsy was taken to rule out anything more serious. Dr. Levy determined the biopsy was negative, and Kelly was given antibiotics for what seemed like just a standard ear infection. However, the symptoms did not clear up as they should have, and 13 months later, stage 4 cancer of the neck and throat was finally diagnosed. Mr. Copeland did receive treatment and ultimately survived the ordeal, but not without a price. He lost the ability to swallow food, and his quality of life has been greatly affected. As all of the horrible details came to light through this investigation, it became clear that this was not just a case of medical negligence. This was criminal behavior. In August of 2019, a federal grand jury indicted Mr. Levy, and public records show his wife separated from him that same month. By October of 2019, Mr. Levy's wife had filed for divorce. Mr. Levy faced a whopping 31 charges, including three charges of involuntary manslaughter and 28 charges of mail fraud, wire fraud, and false statements to law enforcement officials. Those fraud charges seem to stem from his orders for the 2M2B drug that he was having shipped to his home, which was often being shipped across state lines. Though it appears that he initially pled not guilty, in June of 2020, Mr. Levy took a plea deal and ended up pleading guilty to one charge of involuntary manslaughter and one count of mail fraud. He was sentenced to 20 years in prison. Well, this might seem like a victory, it was a bittersweet win for the patients and families who had been affected by his negligence. Mr. Levy's sentence could not bring back the 15 lives he had played a critical role in ending. It could not reverse the pain and suffering of the victims who survived, but were forced to endure unnecessary treatments or delayed treatments. It could not bring trust back into the hearts of those patients and families who counted on the medical system Mr. Levy represented 
to do them no harm. It wouldn't mend the hearts of the Kolpec family, who lost a formidable family man far too early. It wouldn't bring back Robert Chick, who died in 2017 from lung cancer that Mr. Levy had failed to diagnose. It wouldn't heal Mr. Copeland from the invasive treatment he was forced to undertake for his delayed cancer diagnosis. It wouldn't bring back the life of the unnamed veteran who died of small cell carcinoma after receiving treatment for the wrong cancer. This case was one of very few that crossed the line from a civil malpractice suit into a full-blown criminal proceeding. But given the prolonged and blatant negligence of Mr. Levy, there really was no other acceptable way to handle it. While this case was certainly extreme in many ways, I hope there are a few things you take away from this. First is to honor the lives that were affected by Mr. Levy's actions. Because while the case may be over now and Mr. Levy is behind bars, those lives deserve to be remembered long after Mr. Levy's publicity has faded. And second is to remember the key message from every episode. Do not be afraid to advocate for yourself and your health. While I'm hopeful a case of this scale may never slip under the radar again, and most healthcare professionals are outstanding humans doing the absolute best they can, don't be afraid to speak up and seek a second opinion if things aren't lining up for you. You know yourself best. I want to thank every one of you who have listened throughout season one. This podcast is a hobby for me, not a business, and I'm honored to share these stories. Truthfully, when season one started, I wasn't sure I'd end up with any listeners, given the vast sea of podcast content out there. So truly, thank you. If you've enjoyed the season, please consider leaving a rating or review on your chosen platform or just sharing our name with a friend. We are also on Patreon and Buy Me a Coffee, where you can support the podcast, listen to guaranteed ad-free episodes, vote on future episodes, and more. I'll be taking a few weeks off, but keep your eyes on your feed for Season 2 coming soon. Much love and good health to you all. For sources and additional show notes, follow the link in the episode summary to our website. If you'd like to see pictures related to the episodes and the Miss Medical Podcast, you can find us on Instagram as Miss Medical Podcast. If you love Miss Medical and want to support the show, find us on Patreon where you can officially join the intern team. All episodes are written by myself and aim to be as factually accurate as possible. Music is an original composition recorded and produced by Jason Chamberlain. And of course, make sure you follow the podcast on your chosen platform so you never miss an episode.